Magazines and Monsters, Episode 36, The Curse of Frankenstein from 1957. More than a hundred years ago, in a mountain village in Switzerland, lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become a legend. A legend that is still told with horror the world over. We've only just started, just opened the door. But now's the time to go through that door and find what lies beyond it. Why don't you see, Paul? We've discovered the source of life itself and we've used it to restore a creature that was dead. This is Frankenstein, who revolted against nature who experimented with the devil and was forever cursed. His unwilling collaborator was Paul Kremp. I can't prove you murdered, but I can stop you using his brain. Why, he has no further use for it? Don't be a Be careful! Go down again! Only two women ever entered this house of evil. Elizabeth, come back! Elizabeth, the lovely cousin who had promised to marry him, and Justine, the maid, who kept passionate and secret rendezvous with her master. Won't you understand you're in real danger? What Victor is doing is dangerous to everyone in the house. Now, you cannot possibly conceive what dreadful thing he's planning to do. What are you trying to tell me, Paul? That Victor's wicked? Insane? Wicked? Insane? Evil? Call Frankenstein what you will. A demon had made a man-made monster, and now... The monster was the master. Paul, what are you going to do? For your sake and to protect Elizabeth, I've so far kept silent. But now I shall go to the authorities and have them destroy that creature and see that you pay for these atrocities. No! Hey everybody, Billy D, aka Doc Strange here, back with another recording, and this one has been a long time coming. Um, I have been promising throughout uh, the last year and a half that I was going to talk a lot of Hammer, and I have not delivered until this point, but 2022 is going to be different, so get ready for a ton of Hammer this year. I have a lot of cool guests lined up to uh, talk Hammer with me, and uh, the first one right out of the gate is uh, Mike from Comics in the Golden Age. How are you, buddy? Hey, Billy, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, you and I are going to talk about the one that started it all. So this is you know, going to be a discussion about Curse of Frankenstein from 1957. You know, it was the first color horror film. It was their first real horror film. You know, they had some sci-fi and, you know, they were in every genre up until this point as well. But this is really what turned the corner for Hammer and they just went crazy with horror and sci-fi and stuff like that, uh, suspense and thrillers basically until they went out of business. <laughs> so this is definitely where it started. So you got to start here. This is, you know, the beginning. And, you know, I think it's one of the, uh, I don't know if seminal films is the word for it technically, but I think it's definitely a very, very important film in horror, especially in this, uh, in this uh, age. What do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, it almost basically rebirthed horror films. If you think about it, I mean, at that point, mm -hmm. I mean, what sci-fi films had become predominant. They had a horror element. There were a lot of monster films, you know, The Blob. There was other stuff. But 
otherwise horror had kind of taken a back seat to the monster films at that point and hammer really i mean you you know more about this than me but i feel like hammer really reset things and brought horror back that had been gone for a long time yeah they really did you know people there's sometimes people that get a little grouchy because people love to fight with each other and they they, they, (laughs) really (laughs) and they try to always pit uh universal and hammer against each other like who's better which one do you like better of course i'll have that conversation any day i'll just say hey i like hammer better but i definitely uh think universal you know that's what started i i look at it as this like if you see a huge uh haunted gothic mansion you know out into a on a street somewhere and it's real spooky and scary uh, the foundation for that house is you know that's universal universal built that foundation and you need a strong foundation to have a good house but to me when you look at the house and you see how scary and spooky it is and all that stuff what really attracts you to it to me that's what hammer did they built this gothic mansion on top of a really strong foundation that you know universal built that's that's a good description i I, I know for me, when I grew up, a lot of people, if they'd asked me, like, are you a horror fan? I would have said no. But that's because when I was a teenager, it was the 80s. And horror then was like Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. And, and those are fine, but that wasn't really film. They weren't films. And no offense to anyone who's a fan, but those weren't really things I was into. But mm-hmm. I liked old films. And I, I grew up loving old stuff. And that, that included universal horror films and it included Hammer Horror. Mm-hmm. Because, and to be honest, the Hammer Horror thing came from Star Wars. I had Peter Cushing. Mm. I saw it someday on TV. And I was like, hey, that's the dude. So I watched it and I liked it. And so when I was growing up, even though I didn't consider myself a quote-unquote horror fan, I did really dig the universal films. And I really dug the Hammer Horror films. and. To me, I compare it to, I'm sorry to get into comics, but it was like for a comic fan growing up who knew Earth 1 and Earth 2 on DC. Mm. You know, they were the Earth 1 and Earth 2 of horror films. You know, Universal was the Earth 2, the earlier one that started it all. Hammer Horror was the Earth 1, the new version that came about in the late 50s. And that's how I kind of viewed them. But they were both equally valid and equally classic in my mind. They were both... You know, one was the black and white hammer. And this is one of the strengths of hammer, because really before then, I always thought when I looked at the 1940s black and and 30s black and white films, the black and white helped. It added a mood. It added a setting. It was something about it being black and white that gave it more, you know, gravitas and spookiness, frankly, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. But when hammer came along and they were the first ones to be in color, they use that color very well. You know, the, the, it was a grayness to the, a lot of the scenes, but the way they used the red for the blood and the costumes, mm-hmm. it was so much green, like Peter Cushing especially had some green colored coats that really worked. And it was just hammer made, it, made horror work in color, which is a really big, it, they didn't just bring back horror, but they made horror work in color, which is a really important step for the genre, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. And then, of course, you know, they were the the Universal films definitely, especially once they got going, had way bigger budgets than Hammer films (laughs) did. But Hammer, I feel like with these lesser budgets, you know, comparatively speaking, 
you know, they did really, really well. And a lot of it was because they had strong writing and strong acting. And, you know, the people that were behind the scenes, too, with the sets and the, and the score and everything, they really knew how to put, you know, a really solid, good uh, film that, to me, stands the test of time. You can still watch these Hammer films today. And to me, they're still really well acted. They are very good with their scripts and stuff like that. It was it's like, again, especially when you have people like Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee who were, you know, great. Oh, absolutely. When it came to acting, they had a superb cast and not just Peter Cushing and, you know, Christopher Lee, who were wonderful. But they they drew from a lot of great actors and it really made the Hammer films hit hard. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the people in the production side, too, we can talk about that for a few minutes, too. You know, it's the director was Terrence Fisher. I think everybody would agree that, you know, as a fan of Hammer is, you know, the best director they ever had. You know, he's the he's the man, you know, he's there's some other good movies that weren't directed by him. Absolutely. Uh, I love them. But to me, he is the guy for making horror films at Hammer like that's the, the best films are the ones that he directed. Oh, absolutely. There's no question on that. Mm-hmm. And then Jimmy Sangster was uh, the guy that wrote the screenplay. Another guy that was a big hammer, you know, behind the scenes guy for quite a few years. Uh, Anthony Hines, again, another name you'll see on many, many hammer films when the credits are rolling. He was a producer. And one of my names that I always look for, uh, uh, James Bernard, he did the uh, score. You know, I his scores to his films to me are, again, he's kind of like, hitched at the hip with uh, Terrence Fisher. His music is always the best. Not that other ones aren't good, but his, to me, are the best. And this film's no, definitely no exception to that. The score is fantastic. Yeah, I wish... Well, I want to say that about the writers, but first, I wish more of these scores were available for, like, mm. legal download, because yeah. I would buy all of them if they were. But you mentioned the writers early, and one thing you have to mention about Sangster and some of the others is they had a real challenge to face, which was not getting sued by Universal. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, some of the books may have been in the public domain, but because the studio had adapted it into their own work, they literally had threatened lawsuit. So they mm-hmm. had to come up with plots that were, and we'll talk about this later when we actually discuss the movie itself, but they had to find a way to differentiate these films from the Universal films while still train, staying at least somewhat true to the original concept, which was not an easy task. It may sound easy, but it's not at all. And Sangster mm-hmm. and some of the others in the initial films did a fantastic job of doing that. Yeah, and they basically got told, too, if your monster looks anything like Boris Karloff, we're going to sue the pants off it, too. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something they had to be very wary of, too. And I think they did a pretty good job, too. I think, uh, you know, he does not look anything. And that, when I was younger was the toughest thing for me. Cause like you said too, I'd watched the universals. They were on television a lot when I was a kid, but hammer was not, uh, I didn't see them until a little bit later, like my teenage years, because they just, like I said, they weren't on television all the time, but universal was on all the time. So to me, when I'm thinking of the monster, I'm thinking Boris Karloff. So then when I saw this film, I'm like, Oh, this is pretty cool. But then when you first see, you know, our buddy, Christopher Lee as the, the creature here, it looks nothing like Boris Karloff. So that was very jarring to me. But over the years, I've come to love that look more and more. Yeah, Christopher Lee had definitely had, I mean, Karloff had the class. I mean, he is the the definitive Frankenstein. There's no mm-hmm. question. I mean, yeah. he is the one, if you ask, if you just pulled someone off the street and you said, how do you, 
and you drew them like 10 different versions of Frankenstein. You said, which is Frankenstein? They would pick Karloff. He's just become mm -hmm. Frankenstein. But Christopher Lee is, for me, definitely close second. But he has the more grotesque version of Frankenstein, the more kind of frightening version. Because we know, like, Christopher Lee had didn't have the kind of more, at least as far as I can remember, didn't have the more emotional kind of vulnerable scenes that the Karloff one got sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and his was more disfigured, and oh yeah, so his was more frightening. And really, in his films, well, I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much, but you know, Christopher Lee was not the focus of the his film as much as Karloff was mm -hmm. his. So we, I, the purpose of Karloff's film at times was more to make us identify with the creature. Where in Christopher Lee's films, he was not portrayed in a way that we were ever really expected at least not much to identify with him you know his mm -hmm. films christopher lee was not the star peter cushing was more of the focus oh yeah so there's a different dynamic going on between the two creatures yeah and i think that might be another way that they thought about you know hey let's be different than universal um either out of wanting to do it or you know like you had said earlier about trying to uh not uh, get into litigation <laughs> about yeah. it. So that might be another reason why they shifted focus to uh, Baron Frankenstein there, uh, Peter Cushing too. That could, that could be it too. And that's, again, it, it's, they're such different films. You can love both of them at the same time. There's, you don't have to pick one or the other. You can love both of them at the same time. But like you said, there's so many things about this one to me, like it being in color was a huge advantage. I think, you know, when you see the blood or when you see these, you know, vibrant colors on, uh, you know, Baron Frankenstein's, you know, jacket or uh, uh, Hazel Court, you know, uh, on one of her dresses or something like towards the end, she's in this beautiful gown after they got oh. married. Like, wow, you, you don't get that from Universal's being in black and white, but it just, it really pops off the screen when you see it in a Hammer film. Oh, yeah. Hammer really. And it wasn't a Technicolor film. I can't remember what the color thing they used, but I really think they used particularly in the early you know late 1950s early 60s films they really use color to their advantage well in mm -hmm. the designs of the like you said the gowns the girl the women wore the costumes the men wore like peter cushing and such they used it well and uh, and getting back to what you said earlier i think you know the i do think the emphasis on peter cushing's character was what set this film apart from the universal film and gave it and you, and I absolutely love both films. And mm -hmm. you know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to I'm going to do some ranking, which is always a dangerous thing cuz <laughs> how you feel one week may not be how you feel <laughs> like six yep. months later. But I I think ultimately my favorite original Frankenstein film, my favorite film that tells the original story of the monster is this one. But mm -hmm. I do ultimately prefer the Bride of Frankenstein and the Son of Frankenstein. And this one is in third place for me. Gotcha. But I prefer this one before the first Frankenstein. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I know where you're coming from there. Yep, for sure. Yep. I, I, I totally love die. All of them. I love this one. I love that, the original one. They're all great films. But I'm just, as far as the original, I think this is what I would prefer for the original film mm -hmm. idea. But I have a really high regard for The Bride of Frankenstein and The Son of Frankenstein, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, again, yeah, two more good films. But, 
Yeah. And well, this one too, like we were saying about earlier too, you know, uh, the amount of money, the budget for this was 65,000 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty sad, that's but <laughs> hard to even by today's uh, uh, God, you know, I know if inflation exists, but that's, I can't imagine that that's that much even then. No, I had, what were people actually getting paid that to, to be the actors and actresses in this film to be behind the scenes? Like, wow. But it did make, you know, there's reports that it made around 70 times the budget. You know, that's an approximation, but that's what they approximated that. It made 70 times the budget. So that's pretty darn good for 1957. Oh, hell yeah. Especially mm, considering, you know, what a risk this was to have, you know, Dracula hit in American audiences. And I, not to knock Britain, but I think a lot of that money came from America and you know, Dracula and Frankenstein and all of them had kind of run their course and they'd become, you know, Abbott and Costello films, which mm -hmm. were great. I like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is one of my favorite films, but it mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, once you hit that point, you're in parody. You can't do a regular Frankenstein film anymore. Theoretically, you've kind of hit that point where, you know, you've gotten too meta and people are laughing at it. So to yeah. be able, you know, a few years later to reboot and do a new Frankenstein film successfully, you know, is very impressive. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree with you on that one. But OK, so, yeah, now we talk about the cast here. We already mentioned, you know, uh, our buddy Peter Cushing as Baron Frankenstein. Uh, he was excellent in this film, just like he is in pretty much every Hammer film, every horror film. Whatever I've seen him in, I've, I've never seen a bad performance from him. I've always seen great ones or at least solid ones. And then even some performances that were in some terrible movies. But he brought them up to being, you know, watchable because he was in it and he was so good. So what do you think of him? Well, I mean, he he literally was incapable of a bad acting performance. You know, he just but I, I do want to give some credit to whoever did his wardrobe in these films. Oh, yeah. I don't know how much he had input because he is a superb actor. He's a wonderful actor. He, like I said, could not do a bad performance in even the worst film. Mm -hmm. But man, he was dressed to the nines in all these films perfectly. Even, even in the darkest scenes of this film where he was doing surgery and he was wiping blood on his chest. Oh, yeah. You know, he still had a hell of a great outfit on. He just something about the way he dressed in these films was perfect. But man, Peter Cushing, you know, flawless, always. Yeah, yeah, he's the man. <laughs> he's my favorite. Anybody that uh, follows me on Twitter knows uh, how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> I would never have noticed that. Your <laughs> I did want to mention, too, uh, the uh, kid that played, you know, the young Baron, which we'll get into that in a minute here. Uh, that was Melvin Hayes, and he is uh, pretty good, too. He did a lot of television work, but he also did one other film, a uh, horror film that I've seen. It's called The Flesh and the Fiends. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's uh, yep. about like uh, the Burke and Hare grave robbers, you know, from uh, over there in the UK at one point. And he uh, plays a, a kid in that one, too, because I think that one came out around 1960. But uh, that, Peter Cushing's in that one, too. And then so is uh, Donald Pleasance. I have not, but I do think he did a fantastic job. And I thought he he pulled off very well doing a young Cushing because this character is a sociopath. He is just a jerk and he's very pompous and he's you know immune to sensing other people's emotions a lot of the time mm -hmm. and 
you know, Peter Cushing portrayed that well, and that kid portrayed it very well, especially for someone. I don't know what he age he was when he filmed this, mm-hmm. but he did a superb job as a young Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah, he was really, really cool. Um, and like I said, I had to mention that other one because that's a pretty neat film, too. You know, but uh, he was good in that one, too. But then we have a uh, Hazel Court. Uh, she played Elizabeth, uh, Peter Cushing's cousin and then later wife. <laughs> which sounds crazy now and creepy and weird, but hey, <laughs> back then, okay. Um, and I knew her from a few other movies, too. She'd been in a couple Corman films, you know, horror films that he made in the 60s, and then another good Hammer film, uh, The Man Who Could Cheat Death. She was in that one, too, and I really liked her in that one. She was really good in that one. I liked her a lot. Oh, I have seen her in other stuff, and I thought she was great in this. She did a really good job, especially her... I'll save some of this, but I thought in some of her final scenes, she did a really good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was she was solid. I mean, she doesn't come in till about what halfway through the movie, maybe. But you know, yeah. uh, she's she's good. And then uh, one of the other main players here, uh, you know, Baron Frankenstein's uh, accomplice, at least for a while, uh, is uh, actor Robert Urquhart, and that's uh, Paul Kremp. He's uh, you know he comes to uh, teach the Baron at a young age, tutor him, and then they kind of become partners for a while. But I thought he was excellent too. And you were saying too about some of the costumes, like wow, some of the stuff he was wearing was really cool. Yeah, his character is really the heart of the film mm-hmm. in some ways because he's, you know, like I said, Cushing's character is kind of the sociopath who drives the whole thing. And it, but his character is the contrary to that. But he's also it's weird because you sympathize with him so much, but he's also really ineffective the whole time. Like he, doesn't, <laughs> he just kind of sits there and lets Frank, he he's horrified by what he's seen through so much of it, but he keeps going. But the actor does a superb job with his facial expressions of conveying even early on when um, Peter Cushing's Frankenstein is going down that road, his facial expressions, even in the early stage are a weird mix of like intrigued but cautious and as he goes along he portrays more caution and and then it goes to fear and being horrified and he does a lot with his facial expressions throughout the film that he does a really superb acting job yeah for sure body language was a big one and again when you're dealing with a meager budget but you had some good scripts and good acting and these actors you know really like you said facial expressions body language that that's it's something you don't see in a lot of films, um, especially I shouldn't say a lot of films in that era. I think you saw it more then than you do now, comparatively speaking. But uh, it's definitely something that, to me, set Hammer apart from some of the other studios that were around at the time. You know, they they really did have some top notch people. Oh, yeah, definitely. And then we have Christopher Lee. You know, he was the monster <laughs> in this one. Uh, big, imposing, scarred up, scary looking dude. <laughs> What'd you think? Well, I mean, it's Christopher Lee. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't allow for. I mean, he is somewhat limited because he's the monster in this movie. Like we said, Cushing's character is more the focus, whereas in the Universal, the monster gets more attention. So Lee's somewhat limited, but mm-hmm. I do think he takes really good advantage of the moments he has. He he does do a good job of being horrified. You know, there's the scene later where he gets uh, shot in the eye oh <laughs> you know he's he's great during that there's a scene where he's hanging from the ceiling mm-hmm. you know he his facial expression goes 
very ominously from angry to really sad and pathetic. So I do think even though the monster is more limited in this versus the universal film, Lee does a really good job of taking the most advantage he can of what he has to work with. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And he, you know, it's obviously a huge contrast, this role compared to some of the other hammer roles where he was, you know, the focus or he was obviously had a a ton of, you know, speaking and stuff like that. Those movies here, just, you know, the ones where he has a lot of dialogue or a good bit of dialogue to me, he really got to shine the best, but I mean, Oh yeah. Not to go off on a tangent, but his Dracula is my favorite and he's scary and menacing. And some of those, you know, earlier, especially in the earlier ones, he had very few lines, if any, in a couple of them. But he was so scary and he's still my favorite Dracula. But, uh, yep, got to love him. And then uh, I did like uh, another character, uh, actress Valerie Gaunt. She played Justine, who was uh, the maid. And <laughs> she was an interesting uh, part in this movie. But she was also in the, you know the 1958 Dracula or horror of Dracula with uh, Cushing and Lee as well. She was one of Dracula's brides in that one. Her storyline to me is actually one of the nicest. Well, nice. That's a poor word choice. because <laughs> It gets <laughs> twisted, but it's one of the, the most fascinating and I think well played out additions to this film because it, it tells us so much about Peter Cushing's character that he's engaged to his cousin and he's this rich kid who inherited a bunch of money and he knows he's engaged to his cousin, but you know, to be blunt, he's hooking up with his maid Mm -hmm. and is it too early for me to kind of mention what's going on with them? What happened? (laughs) Since did I wait? It it goes down a dark road, which is really twisted, but, really shows us i mean i honestly thought more than anything he did with the monster what he what her fate was told us more about cushing's frankenstein than anything else really yeah that really reveals what lengths he'll go to so he can accomplish whatever goals he wants to he's a he he has no conscience let's be honest here yeah he really does not (laughs) It, it was where you really learned that wow we thought he was a bastard before, but now we know he is really yep. an yep. person. It, that was just terrible. Yep. And then there's really only one other character that, you know, you see more than, you know, for more than a minute or so. It's uh, uh, Professor uh, Bernstein. You and I talked about him off mic for a minute here. That's uh, Paul Hardmuth. Um, and he <laughs> what happens to him is uh, interesting, too. But we'll we'll get into that. But he's really that's really if you really look at it, just those six people, that's that's pretty much it for this movie. Yeah, we had mentioned that I had gotten a recent um, DVD set to watch to rewatch this in preparation. And one thing I learned is someone who was going to be in the cast. And you probably know this already, um, who was only going to have a small part as mortuary assistant was Patrick Trotton, who was the second Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And he yep. filmed a scene that was cut out. And man, I wish he was in it, even though it was just a few minutes. I would have loved to have seen that because I love Doctor Who. And it just would have been a kick to see in the actor a decade before he played the character. I, I wish that scene was still part of the film. Yeah, he was in a lot. He was all over the place in the 50s and 60s over there in the UK with films and television. He did a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, he's like you said, he's probably most famous for being uh, 
one of the doctors. Yeah, I love the guy. Mm-hmm. I would. I, I really, when I heard that, I was like, damn, I wish he was in it because I would have loved to have seen him that early in his career. Well, not yeah. early for him, but early from my perspective. Yeah. So there's a couple other people, you know, behind the scenes here. I'll mention there was a, a name you'll see pop up. You know, these ones are very, especially the, the early, late 50s and early 60s, early to mid 60s. You'll see these names. Uh, Bernard Robinson, he's the production designer. And Don Weeks, the production manager. You see those guys almost in, you know, every film for the first like six or seven, maybe even eight years for Hammer. Um, and to me, you know, when we're talking about the sets and all that kind of stuff and squeezing all the the, the couple of pounds out of every <laughs> piece of set and, you know, every piece of production you can think about, those are the guys that were behind that trying to basically take that budget and say, okay, how can we make this work? So two, those two names for sure. And then Makeup Phil Leakey. He did a bunch of the early hammers, but I can't remember the guy's name who came on then and did the later ones. He was pretty good too, but that's the name you'll see for makeup. And then uh, editor James Needs, that's another one you'll see too. Uh, he was you know, always there in these hammer films again, especially the early ones. And then one more, uh, Anthony Nelson Keys. He was an associate producer and he produced, you know, helped produce a bunch of different hammer films too. So those are definitely names that, again, if you watch enough Hammer films, you're like, yep, I remember that name. Yep, yep, yep. It's like, I know, checking off all the boxes. But um, yeah, so all right, let's get into it here. So why don't I just, uh, I'm going to rattle off a, a quick little, you know, overview of the film. It's it's very, you know, broad. It doesn't really get into too many specifics. So I'll just rattle this off and then you and I will kind of start at the beginning and roll through it uh, specific with it, you know, with our uh, our scenes that we really want to talk about and all that stuff. So how about we do that, man? Yeah, go ahead. All right, so you know, I'm I have no shame. I'm just getting <laughs> getting uh, too lazy really, and just really? and don't even <laughs> and don't even like writing out like a, a two page synopsis anymore for me. It's just like, <laughs> uh, do I really want to do that? Like, does anybody really want to hear that? And I think the answer to that's no. So the last no, couple times, no, this. I think they probably know. So. <laughs> yeah, they've seen this or they know the general concept. And again, it's. They'd rather hear you and I talk about the film rather than me just read a synopsis. So the last couple of times I talked about films, I just grabbed whatever one I could find on like IMDb or whatever. Uh, this is, uh, I'm pretty sure it's from IMDb and it's uh, the guy's name. It says Gary KMCD. So Gary, thank you. <laughs> thank you, my friend. I want to give you full credit. So, uh, uh, and we, we did forget to mention, I'm sorry, this film, it starts out, you know, uh, kind of like in the now, and then it goes back through, the Baron's memories as he's in prison and he tells a, a priest about, you know, what led to him being imprisoned. And then, you know, at the end, you know, there's a bookend scene and we'll, we'll talk about that too. But uh, I just wanted to say that just to kind of set the, set the scene here. So uh, in prison and awaiting execution, Dr. Victor Frankenstein recounts to a priest what led him to his current circumstance. He inherited his family's wealth after the death of his mother when he was still only a young man. He hired Paul Krim as his tutor, and he immediately developed an interest in medical science. After several years, he and Krim became equals, and he developed an interest in the origins and nature of life. After successfully reanimating a dead dog, Victor sets about constructing a man using body parts he acquires for the purpose, including the hands of a pianist and the brain of a renowned scholar. As Frankenstein's excesses continue to grow, Krimp is not only repulsed by what his friend has done, but is concerned for the safety of the beautiful Elizabeth, Victor's cousin and fiance who has come to live with them. 
His experiments lead to tragedy and his eventual demise. So that's pretty accurate, but obviously doesn't get very specific. So like I said, why don't we start at the beginning here? So the film starts out with, you know, a, a priest heading towards a prison up on a mountain, you know, the side of a mountain on a uh, horse. And he comes inside to uh, see someone that's asked for him. And it's, uh, you know, Baron Frankenstein and he's been imprisoned and, uh, I love that beginning scene. That's one of my favorite opening scenes to any horror movie of any era. What do you think of that one? I actually, that's one of my favorite aspects of the film because I thought it was a great way to start out being kind of true to the Mary Shelley novel, while at the mm-hmm. same time separating itself from the original Frankenstein film. Yeah, I that scene to me is great because <laughs> I love the visuals and I also love how you know, when the priest comes in to talk to Cushing, he kind of seems like he's, you know, a little bit mellow. But then when the priest doesn't kind of, you know, uh, give him the answers he wants, as in, hey, I want to tell you about, you know, what went on. So somebody will know that can pass this on because, you know, I'm going to die soon because they're going to send him <laughs> to the guillotine. He, you know, the priest is kind of like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't tell me this. And he kind of tries to like walk out of the <laughs> cell and Cushing, you know, from these experiences he's about to talk about. Plus, you know, his imminent beheading. He grabs the priest by the neck, like just starts throttling <laughs> him. And the priest is like, you know, take your hands off me or I'm going to call the guard. And he's like, oh, sorry. Here, sit down. Listen to me. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite lines ever. Perhaps you'd better start from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. Yeah, and Peter is not a is not an actor that we often think of as anything other than very proper. Mm-hmm. But he this is a scene where he's very disheveled, he's desperate, he's dirty. He's mm-hmm. clearly, you know, at the end of his straits and you know, it's interesting if you if you keep this scene in mind throughout the rest of the film. If you view the rest of the film as him telling this priest the story of his situation, he I mean, if you really think about it, he's going to tell him some very unflattering things <laughs> later on. Like if he's really if what we see progresses in the film is everything he's telling the priest versus an unfiltered version that's he's, you know, coloring and turning to his favor. Those are two very different things, because if he's actually telling him what we see, this priest is going to think he's a madman <laughs> and have an even worse impression of him in an hour or two than he does now. Well, I got to tell you, I think the way I view it is as if he tells this priest exactly what we see. (laughs) And the reason is because uh, when the priest first comes into the cell, he says to uh, Baron Frankenstein, is it spiritual comfort you're looking for, my son? And he looks at him and he goes, save it for those who think they need it. (laughs) So I think he's got no problem telling this priest uh, everything and like you, you alluded to there are some things that happen and it's like you know <laughs> with the stuff with justine and stuff like wow you're really telling a priest about that <laughs> like holy smoke so i but i do i think that's how arrogant he is that he uh he, he'd tell that story to anybody because in his mind what the ends justify the means that's that's his that's how his brain works i actually agree with you i think he is doing that i think he's telling them everything that we hear it, the words and all <laughs> yep. And then, you know, like the synopsis kind of said, you know, we see, uh, you know, there's a funeral. His mother passed away and I guess his father had passed away 10 years previous to that. So technically he was the, you know, air quotes baron now. Um, <laughs> and then we see, you know, a cute little scene with, uh, I believe it's uh, his aunt and then his cousin. And she kind of says to him like, uh, hey, so 
uh, I hate to bring this up, but your mother was basically sending me money, you know, because they were like basically poor and would have been in the streets if his uh, mother wouldn't have been uh, funneling some money to them. And he's like, yep, I'll I'll still send the money. No problem. And, you know, she's like, you know, this is, you know, what your cousin Elizabeth and she'll make somebody a great wife someday. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Like hit the road. He basically tells them to get lost because he wants to get to, you know, what's on his mind. And that is furthering his education. And that's when we meet uh, uh, Paul Crimp, you know, Robert Urquhart's character. I really like that when you first see them uh, meet there. That's a really cool scene, too. Yeah. And, and one thing with the aunt and cousin is it's interesting to me that he is kind of twofold. On the one hand, he's annoyed by them. He doesn't want to deal with them. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, he's he doesn't care about money. He's not greedy. He doesn't. That's not his thing. He is no. perfectly happy to devote himself to paying them off their entire lives to just get him to leave them alone. So mm-hmm. we we learn about his character that, yeah, he's got sociopathic tendencies. He's not a warm hearted person by any means, but his heart does not lie with money. He does not care about money at all. No. And that's one thing that they do carry through all of the, you know, uh, Frankenstein films, too. He's he's all about his work and figuring out, you know, the secrets of life and death. That's all he cares about. He doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about status and nothing else. That's all he really cares about in the end is how he's going to get to that, you know, that (laughs) that that answer. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But uh, and then, you know, again, they, you know, uh, in the synopsis I read there, it kind of alluded to the scene where, you know, uh, Paul teaches him everything he can. And, you know, uh, Frankenstein's uh, narrating here and says, you know, within two years, I learned everything he could teach me, which, you know, they're pretty much like equals at that point. And they start talking about experimenting. And that scene with that little puppy, I didn't realize that was a real dog at first. Like the first time I saw this film, I was just like, oh, I'm sure that's some kind of toy or proper puppet or something there. And then the guy picks it up and I see it breathing. And I'm like, Holy crap, that's a real dog. Yeah, that I had the same reaction where I kind of realized that at some point I was like, oh, wow, I hope they didn't hurt the dog because <laughs> I can go along. I can suspend my dif- disbelief for a lot of things and I can accept like torturing humans. But, oh, man, don't hurt the dog. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like the cutest little dog, too. I don't know what kind of puppy it is, but, you know, after they revive him, you know, bring him back from death. It shows them, you know not in the laboratory anymore, but inside the house and having a conversation about, you know, the process and this and that. And you see Cushing's character, you know, uh, Baron Frankenstein, he's like staring off and you can tell he's like already in his mind what he wants to do next, where where Paul is just thinking, wow, this was great. And let's, you know, uh, write a paper about it and send it to this like science committee and this and that. Won't it be great? And the little puppy scampers off and uh, Cushing's like, yeah, we could uh, have a paper ready in time, but we're not going to. And uh, Paul's like, why not? And he's like, because this is nothing. We need to go further. Yeah, this was the this was the scene that really set the stage for their relationship because up until this point, they were on the same page. Paul was all in on what he was doing. He understood, but this is the first hint we get that wait a minute, there. You know, Paul's like, you know the cautious one and wants to like take their time and realize the gravitas of what they're doing. Whereas Frankenstein is just like obsessed, more obsessed with what he wants to do. And so this is an important scene where we start to get the first hint of a dichotomy between the two characters. Yeah. And it did kind of seem like a little bit of a parallel. There aren't many, but this seemed like one of them uh, in comparison to the uh, 1931 universal film, you know, Colin Clive's character, 
Colin Clive and Peter Cushing now, how they both just, you know, they have this fascination with, you know, you know, playing God, like being able to create something from nothing, being able to bring something back from the dead. You know, that's the, the, the little bit of a, a madness in with the genius in there. I, I saw a little bit of a parallel there, you know, especially when they're talking like that in those uh, scenes. Yeah. And it is a credit to the writer to start to be able to distinguish the films between this one and universal that, cause that is a hard road to go down. So it, uh, you know, one credit I guess that went through watching this film is to try to find the ways that they were trying to differentiate the two films. And I really think they did the writer and everyone did a really good job of kind of making them two different entities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So then, wow, they have that little conversation and then they start to begin the process. You know, they, uh, <laughs> Baron Frankenstein knows there's a, a, a corpse hanging, uh, uh, outside of a nearby town. I don't know if the guy was a, a thief or something like that. He was a, a, yeah, a crook of some sort. And so they hung him uh, at the edge of town for anybody else that thought they were going to come in there and uh, start any trouble. So you'd kind of turn away. So they go and they, uh, they cut the corpse down and then the horse jumps and the, the score, you know, from uh, uh, James uh, Bernard really kicks in right there. I love that scene. That's a really good one too. Oh, the, you know, the music, like we said earlier, mm. God, I wish this was available. I wish all these Hammer films were available. The music is so good. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. I would, I would literally buy, you know, one thing, do you know Mondo that does the limited mm-hmm. edition, like vinyl things? Yep. Man, if they ever did like a set of, particularly the original Dracula, the original Frankenstein, you know, Horror mm-hmm. did, or Hammer did, God, I would buy all that stuff. It's so good. Yeah, I feel like they'd put out, even if it was a limited uh you know, run. Oh, they would sell out in no time flat. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so, oh, but then when they take this uh, corpse back to the uh, laboratory to uh, begin work, you know, Paul is just like, well, I don't know if we're going to be able to use this because you know, the 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 birds took the eyes out of it and the head's been you know uh, <laughs> half eaten, and uh, you know, Baron Frankenstein just doesn't even pay him no mind when he's saying this. And goes over to his table where he has all his instruments and gets this humongous knife. And Paul's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm going to cut the head off. It's of no use to me. (laughs) Like it's, you know, like he's going to cut a, you know, a piece of ham. And Paul's like just blown away by that. You see that look on his face. And like you alluded to earlier, there's some scenes where you can kind of see where this is going for Paul to be like, this, this is going to be too much for me eventually. This is another one of those scenes. Oh, God, yeah. And this scene where he, Cushing's Frankenstein just casually cuts it off, wraps it in the thing, takes it to the acid, you know. <laughs> Pit or <thing>. whatever, yeah. <laughs> he's just so casual about it, even though he's basically cutting a human's head off, putting it in a bag and throwing it in a vat of acid. He mm-hmm. does it like it's no big deal, like it's just throwing something in the garbage or recycler. It, it's, And we even get a glimpse. They don't show the head. But we get a brief glimpse of the hair on the head as he unwraps it. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know, that actually to me, it's one of those things. It's kind of like Jaws. The less you see, the more it has an impact. Yeah. Like if they'd shown us a human head, it would have been like, oh, that's awful. And we would have moved past it. But the way the scene plays out, he cuts it off. You know, we see his arms moving as he wraps it up in the blanket. He carries it over. He unwraps it. We see the hair, a brief glimpse of the hair. He throws it in the acid. 
to me, that kind of thing is far more disturbing than mm-hmm. just a brief, blunt scene. To me, seeing him do all the grunt work of what that would entail is far nastier and more disturbing to me than just giving me like the full vision. Yep, absolutely. And that's again, that's another thing where I think uh, I that's part of the reason why I enjoy uh, the movies from the 50s, 60s and even into the 70s a little, a little bit, because they kind of kept a little bit, a little bit of that behind the curtain. Yet, you know, once the 80s came around, I think a lot of movies just kind of flat out and would show, you know, everything. Yeah, because you know, kind of, you know, the industry kind of was changing into that anyway, you know, in the early and mid 70s. And it just went full bore in the 80s. But this is why I like this era of films best, because that's the kind of films I like best, that they they only show you a tiny little bit and they let your imagine imagination do the rest. I 100 percent agree. It's like what I said earlier, like about liking older films and these kind of come in the envelope. I think I do totally agree. What they don't show you is as powerful as what they show you. Mm-hmm. And it's why, like to me, like once you get like in the 70s, like. There's some fantastic horror films. I love Shining, Halloween, the original, you know, Exorcist. There's some great stuff. But once you get past that, to me, it becomes more about gore and blood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to me, that becomes more comedic, which has its place. You know, there is something to be said for comedy and graphics. So I'm not knocking it to people who are fans. But to me, I prefer the earlier stuff where it's more, like you said, it's more about what you don't see versus what you see. Because I think mm-hmm. that really has a certain, it builds tension. When you see him moving around and doing this thing, and you know what he's doing, but you can't actually see it, and yeah. you envision it, and it's all up to your imagination. To me, that's far more horrifying than being given a sudden glimpse of it, and you move on. Yep, yep, absolutely agree. So, yeah, so then we see, too, uh, the Baron, like we said, he, he's basically willing to go to any lengths to make this happen. And like we said, too, uh, you can see Paul sort of is, you know, like he's slowly backing out of this, you know, inch by inch. He hasn't gotten to the point yet where he's not going to be a part of it. But you can see he's heading in that direction. And, you know, he eventually gets there. But, you know, uh, the Baron, he, you know, goes to get uh, hands because the hands are (laughs) terrible (laughs) on this corpse. eyes too and that scene where he goes and gets those eyeballs from I th- that guy. I'm pretty oh. sure the eyeball scene was where Patrick Trotton was going to be the guy but anyways. Yeah but oh man he comes back to the laboratory and he kind of has one of them he's looking at it through a <laughs> oh man it's just oh it's disgusting looking because it looks real you know it kind of looks real to me but you know then eventually uh, his uh, cousin Elizabeth shows up and she says she's going to be staying there and Paul's like oh you're staying here for how long and she's like this is to be my home yeah. We're to be married, and he's like, "What?" And that's when he goes to uh, the Baron, and is like, "Hey, we can't keep going on with this. You know, this is this is too much with her around. You know." And he just looks at him like, "Dude, I don't give a crap who's around. I'm doing this. You know what I mean? Like, you really see he's just like, there's nothing going to stop him, short of you know, prison. I guess <laughs> that's about the only thing that's going to stop him from uh, from going down this road." And I do like to the part where eventually Paul does say like. You know, screw it. I'm not helping you anymore. He walks out on him and, you know, the Baron, you know, he still tries to continue with it. But the apparatus that they have needs two people to operate it and he can't do it on his own. So he goes to Paul and says, hey, you know, that thing's for two people. I can't, you know, I can't do it by myself. I want you to help me. And Paul's like, 
I'm delighted you can't do it, you know, because, uh, you know, then your experiments are going to stop. And he's like, listen, pal, either you're going to help me or uh, I'll get Elizabeth involved. And of course, Paul's just like, OK, I'll help you. But um, <laughs> Man, I did. Paul forget- needed to grow some balls. He was <laughs> yeah. morally right throughout this film. But God, he never. Sorry, go on. <laughs> he wouldn't stay. He wouldn't stand up to him. Nope, he couldn't. No, do it, he but... never did. He <laughs> almost never did the whole film. Yeah, not until the very end. But I did forget too. Uh, the brain. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> that Paul goes away for a couple of days, and while he's away, uh, a noted uh, <sighs> big brain of Europe, uh, this Professor Bernstein, uh, comes to the house to visit the Baron and stay with him for a day or two or something, and. Uh, Paul comes back a little earlier than expected and, you know, they're all having drinks and uh, you can see when Paul comes back, Cushing's like, "Uh oh, this is going to put a kink in my plans here because, you know, they talked about him and Paul earlier about a brain and where are we going to get this brain, you know? And then all of a sudden, hey, here's this scene with this really super intelligent doctor guy. And it's like, okay, I can see where this is going, but how is, how is he going to do it? So he's like, oh, I need take, you need to go to bed. You're, you know, he's like a really old guy. So he's like, I'll take you up to your room. And, you know, as they're going up the stairs, he's like, oh, I want to show you this painting <laughs> before you go to bed here. And he's looking at the painting and he's like, if you, you know, stand back a little bit, you can see it better. And he knows uh, in the other room, you know, Paul's there and I'm sure Justine's, you know, floating around somewhere, too. And then <laughs> Elizabeth is there. So he kind of screams like, oh, look out, look out, as if the guy fell on his own. But he pushes the old man off the balcony there down to the first floor and he literally lands like head and neck first that's a gruesome scene that is one of the two scenes that most always stood out of my mind because i know it's a dummy and you could kind of tell when Mm -hmm. that it's a dummy but at the same time it falls in a way that is very realistic it's actually really impressive for dummy special effects because the way it hits it's it's very what i think a body would hit that's falling down with its head and shoulders hitting first and the way it bends is very unnatural, but at the same time natural because it's unnatural because it's a dummy. And I kind of know in my heart it's a dummy, but it's natural in the way that it would break a human neck and kill them. Mm -hmm. And I thought of all the times I've ever seen a dummy being used for a fall it was the one that most actually made me feel like, oh, my God, especially for a film from 1957. Films in that era did not show that kind of graphic stuff. And this mm-hmm. is one of the scenes that, you know, because when this film came out, a lot of critics were kind of horrified by it. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. considered very graphic. And this was one of the scenes that was pointed to for that. And I understand why. And it's probably something admittedly to someone who was born in the 2000s watching this probably would not jump out but in our day this scene was like holy crap you know when i watched it and it really impacted Mm -hmm. me and i thought it was very effective because and also it told us almost more about you know we mentioned earlier with the maid's relationship with that told us about peter cushing but this was the other scene that told us how far he'd gone he he invited this wizen professor you know prestigious guy you know and just his intent clearly from the beginning was to kill him <laughs> to take his brain yeah yeah <laughs> we we talked for a second or two before we started recording too it's like 
oh, I'm going to get this old guy's brain. <laughs> but you're, but you're going to push him off a balcony, and he, he, there's the possibility and probability he's going to land on his head. You know, <laughs> obviously the brain would have some damage to it, but hey, let's not get uh, let's not get let's not get too picky here. All right, all right I'll get over that scene. But I do think about that sometimes. Like, what was he thinking? Like, why didn't you just poison him or? You know, asphyxiate him or something like pushing him off there so he could land on his head and you want the brain. That wasn't great. But anyway, um, so it's well, interesting. One thing, I'm sorry. One thing Go I have to point out is Peter Cushing's acting because when Paul re- interrupted their meeting mm-hmm. and Peter did a really, you know, he did such a good job of looking flushed, you know, just flushed and annoyed. Like you could just tell like. We didn't know what was going to happen, but he had invited this guy over. They were at a nice dinner. He was there with his girlfriend. He was welcoming him. And then Paul came in. Peter didn't expect it. And he just looked really irritated, annoyed, unconfused how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I really liked about Peter Cushing's acting in the scene is he really set the stage that that's when he realized, oh, this is going to go awry. This looked like an innocent dinner. But his mm-hmm. reaction to Paul coming in, that's when they're like, oh, crap he's going to do something bad. <laughs> well, you know what? Maybe he was going to like, you know, hold a pillow over the old guy's face or something. <laughs> but, but when Paul came back, he kind of thought I need to improvise here. So maybe that's uh that was something that's not too off base there. So maybe I need to stop whining about it. But, um, <laughs> so, you know, they, it, then the scene shifts and then, you know, they have the funeral and I guess professor Bernstein had no family. So, you know, Baron Frankenstein's like, well, he died at my home here. So, I'll, uh, you can bury him in my family vault here, this, you know, big crypt. And of course, within, you know, a day or so, <laughs> there's a, the Baron in the crypt, uh, lopping the guy's head off or pulling the, cutting the brain out and Paul <laughs> comes down and, you know, they have a bit of a fight there because Paul's like, you know, you're insane. Like you need to stop. And, you know, the brain gets damaged in the fight and stuff like that. And Cushing really starts snapping out there. And Paul kind of looks at him like he's a little taken aback by, how pissed off he is when that brain gets damaged. So Paul just kind of exits, but um, things really go fast from there because, you know, he eventually does, uh, I guess, pick the pieces of glass out of the brain and stick it into the, uh, into the body there that uh, he's been uh, putting together piece by piece. And that's the scene. Then the next scene is when I was saying about earlier where uh, he says to Paul, like, Hey, you need to help me because it's for two people. And he threatens to, uh, you know, get Elizabeth involved if Paul doesn't help. So then Paul does help him, but you know, it doesn't seem like something works at first. And, you know, they kind of both, uh, I, Oh no, no, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. He does ask him to help him and he says he will, but as he's in the other room, I don't know if the machine kind of gets turned on from a lightning storm or just, you know, by happenstance and it goes haywire and it reanimates, uh, the creature while they're in the other room. And then they are on their way back. And that's when Baron Frankenstein can kind of hear some like rustling around. And he's thinking, what's going on in there? He runs to the room. And then there we have uh, our first appearance of uh, Christopher Lee. You know, I was listening to commentaries on the um, disc I got recently. Mm -hmm. And one of the people doing it suggested that the lightning, sort of the light that sparked Frankenstein, was almost like an act of God. Mm. That that was kind of in contrast to Victor being an atheist. That, okay, gotcha. You know, and I hadn't read that myself into the film. My view was more of just say like, oh, it was a freak thing or something. Mm-hmm. But 
I, I found it interesting because I hadn't thought about that. And they, but they, you know, one of the commentators said that that sort of bolt that ultimately got the process finished that reanimated him was kind of this bolt from beyond that, you know, despite whatever Victor was doing, may not have succeeded if not for that thing. And mm. I had thought about that before. That yeah, was it's interesting. Yeah, and I, I, I didn't ever view it that way. I, my view was more like yours. When mm-hmm. I heard that, I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that. But I thought it was an interesting perspective. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't heard that, but yeah, that is an interesting way of looking at it. I'm definitely going to look at that scene differently after hearing that. Um, but then but it's I, funny. But again, I was like you. I just saw it the way you described until I heard that. Yeah. But then, uh, yeah, of course, you know, Baron Frankenstein goes running into the room and there's the monster and he starts choking a crap out of him. And it takes <laughs> like a, a, a chair shot over the head by Paul to uh, get him to stop. And of course, Paul right away is like, the thing's a maniac. You need to, you know, pull the plug here. And, you know, Baron Frankenstein's like, yeah, no way, man, this is great. You know, you can just see his eyes like he's, you know, so excited and proud that he, you know, created this thing. And, you know, it, it gets away, you know, they uh, leave it locked up in a room, but it does escape. And again, another parallel to the 31 film, you know, instead of a little girl playing by the water, you know, we see the creature walking through the forest and there's a little boy and his grandfather, his blind grandfather, I might add. And, you know, uh, they don't uh, they don't live to see another day. <laughs> Lee really. Uh, I mean, we don't again, we don't get to see it, but, you know, it's something horrible. He does to the two of them. It's just, oh. Yikes. That that scene was another example of what you don't show being worse than what you show, where you just kind of hear a scream and then later oh. see the little bag that the kid was carrying. Where you just, <laughs> it's left up to your imagination, which Oof. can oftentimes, again, be just much worse than you actually see on screen. And I also thought that it was an interesting combination between, you know, the original movies and the sequels where we see the blind man and the original Frankenstein where we see the little girl. Here they kind of merge them into a duo where we see an old man and we see a little boy instead of a little girl instead. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I do like that. But then, of course, uh, the Baron and Paul are like, oh, crap, he escaped. We got to go find him. <laughs> and the Baron's like, uh, I'll go I'll go tell the villagers to come help us. And Paul grabs his rifle and they go hunting him down and they do eventually uh, find him. And like you said, you, you know, kind of alluded to it. Uh, I think it might have been when we were talking a little bit beforehand off mic where, you know, Paul shoots, you know, the creature right in the eye and this bright, horrible looking red blood comes out from between his fingers when he, you know, puts his hand to his eye. Then when he gets shot and he hits the ground and then uh, they bury him. And it's (laughs) it's interesting, too. Again, uh, Baron Frankenstein is uh, he he just doesn't care. He's going to do things his way no matter what the cost. And. You know, Paul says, oh, about the villagers, you know, they're going to when where did you tell them to meet us at? And he's like, I never told them to meet us. It, you know, and he's like, you madman, you risked the two of us against that thing. And yeah, he was just like, yeah, yeah, he, he didn't kill us. He's dead now. And they bury him. But it doesn't take long for the Baron, I guess, to uh, sneak out there and dig him right back up. Who is it? Paul. Oh, I'm just coming. Come in, Paul. 
You wanted to see me. Well, it's been a long time since you've been out here, Paul. Well, why is that? You know you're always welcome. I told you I would not help you. In that case, why have you continued to live here? Oh, but of course, it's Elizabeth you're worrying about, isn't it? What is it you want? Haven't you found it difficult, keeping away? Just guessing what I was doing? Never knowing just how well I was getting on? Hmm? Well, I've decided to let you see my progress. Then you can judge for yourself whether I shall succeed or not. And the last tape but one. Come and see. Oh, what do you think of it? It's horrible. Paul, the features are not important. What matters is I'm creating a being that will live and breathe. Once the scars on the face heal, it won't look so bad. Victor, I appeal to you. Stop what you're doing before it's too late. But what am I doing? I'm harming nobody. Just robbing a few graves. Then what doctor or scientist doesn't? How else are we to learn the complexities of the human animal? Doctors rob for the eventual good of mankind. This can... This can never end in anything but evil. Now, why do you say that? Look, I admit he isn't a particularly good-looking specimen at present, but don't forget. One's facial character is built up of what lies behind it in the brain. A benevolent mind, and the face assumes the patterns of benevolence. An evil mind, then an evil face. For this, the brain of a genius will be used. And when that brain starts to function within the frame, then the face and features will assume wisdom and understanding. I told you I was at the last stage but one, the brain. A brain of superior intellect. A lifetime of knowledge already behind it. Imagine that, Paul. My creature will be born with a lifetime of knowledge. Victor, where is this brain to come from? I'll get it. Yeah, that scene where he shoots him in the eye. I'm oh. interested in one or two scenes between... Him, you know, Frank, Darren Frankenstein pushing the professor over mm -hmm. being one of two scenes that stood out to me. The other one is the one where he shoots the monster Oof. in the eye with the blood because up until, because again, this film came out around 57. Blood was not something you saw in films. It just mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, you had plenty of horror in the 30s and 40s. You had suspense films of Hitchcock in the 50s and such. But you didn't see blood. Blood just was not something you saw on the screen. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is, and I'm sure there's other examples, but I'm just saying for me, and I think I watch a lot of old films, this is the first film where I really see blood coming yeah. out of the eye. And that scene where he shoots the monster and the blood comes pouring out, to me, that's a big moment in film because that had never happened before. And it, blood is important. It matters. You know, you see it. It's horrific. Mm -hmm. And to have that in a film, that is another way that I think this movie set the stage for horror over the next, like, what, it's 2022, the next, like, 60 or 70 years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you, man. It's it's a it was a trendsetter for 1957. There's no doubt about that. You know, it's just it really set the tone for things to come for a long time. So. Um, yeah, and I'm yeah. not a fan of gore. Like I said, I'm not mm -hmm. a gore. Yeah, no, but I, me that neither. doesn't mean I don't think it doesn't have its place. You know, mm -hmm. like I said, some of the films I like, the Hammer films, you know, The Shining. They, 
you know, exercise, they have their play. There are moments that are bloody or ugly mm-hmm. and that's perfectly fine. I think when it gets to excess, it just becomes kind of ridiculous, but I yeah. think it can still be powerful. And I think this is an example where in the context of the film, it was powerful. It stood out, it captured you and it got your attention. Yeah, and for 1957, this was gore. This was like extreme gore. Even like you said earlier, some some of the people that, you know, watch the film and, you know, critics and stuff like that, they were like, this is awful. This is horrible because, you know, they really <laughs> they really pushed the envelope with this film compared to what had come before. But um, and we did too mention, you know, some of the Baron's indiscretions. So <laughs> uh, Justine, the maid, uh, the two of them have been for some time, I think, you know, having an affair and. You know, we saw them in the hallway, you know, making out and talking this and talking all dirty to each other, you know. And then, of course, you know, Elizabeth shows up and she's like, yes, I'm going to live here. I'm going to be married to the Baron. And, of course, Justine's like, what? So we eventually get a scene where she confronts Victor and says, like, hey, like, what's going on with you and this woman here? And he kind of just laughs at her and, like, mocks her, you know, for, you know, know, because he basically this whole time was just telling her what she wanted to hear. And she thought they, you know, they were really a, a thing. And, you know, she gets pissed off at him. And he basically says to her, like, you know, I want you out of this house tomorrow. And she's like, you need to marry me or else I'm going to tell, you know, the authorities what goes on in this house. And he's like, you would need proof. And that was him setting her up, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, I mean, he was he was setting her up to, you know, get to her own end here to help him get her out of the way. I mean, yeah, he was. I mean, he. we've already established he's a huge sleazebag, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, this whole film. And he's very manipulative of both the women in the story and Paul. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he kind of says, you know, the, the authorities would want proof. So later that night, oh, uh, she, oh, this is crazy. She creeps out of her room and goes up to the laboratory and, you know, she goes into a room and that's where he has the creature. Uh, I don't know if he's chained up at that point or not. We do see him later and he has a chain around him, but I don't know if he has one on at that point or not. But, you know, Justine goes in the room and then kind of turns around and sees this uh, creature and she tries to head for the door and the door gets slammed shut and locked by the Baron and she gets killed. And she actually did mention, and I forgot to say, you know, that, you know, not only does she want to get married because, you know, I think she actually genuinely cares about uh, Baron Frankenstein, but that she's pregnant by him. So, you know, now he just locked her in a room with this insane creature that he knows is going to kill a pregnant woman. That's he's wow. That's really, uh, like you said, I don't even know if Sleazeback can can cover that one. He's he's insane. Can can you pass the marmalade, Billy? <laughs> Sorry, I mean, that's a nod to his, Baron has been a complete dick where mm-hmm. he basically had an affair with this woman, impregnated her set her up to be mauled by this monster and in the next scene <laughs> he's at breakfast with his fiance and one of the first lines we get out of his mouth is can you pass the marmalade because that's how much he's affected by these events leading up to what's happened like mm-hmm. despite i mean even i'm not saying people don't have affairs or have their thing but his heartlessness throughout this whole situation is so stark that one of the big lines that people know from this movie is the next morning he's like, oh, can you pass the marmalade? Yeah, it was nothing for him to, you know, basically have her killed. It's like, 
wow, this guy, that's again, that's just one more log on the fire here of, you know, he will do anything. But mauled by a monster. That's a brutal, painful death for this poor woman that he's manipulated this whole time. Yep, that's that's scary, man. But (laughs) wow, this is at the same time. This is a good example of how Hammer differentiated their film from Universal, because, Mm -hmm. again, Universal was more about the monster. And Victor was someone who became obsessed, but then was regretful. Whereas in this movie, Victor is the monster. Victor is the the main monster in this film the entire Mm -hmm. time. Yep, absolutely. And I did forget to mention, you know, right before this, uh, Paul did leave because, uh, you know, as far as he knew, this was over and the monster was buried. And then uh, he does come back, though. And uh, Elizabeth does say to, you know, uh, Victor that she uh, invited Paul to the wedding. And she's (laughs) like, I hope you're not mad about it. And he kind of gives her a look at first like he's really pissed off about it. And then he's like, well, you know what? I hope he does come. I have something I want to show him. And then, of course, you know, Paul does come to the wedding and uh, or even maybe the day before. And, you know, uh, Victor's like, hey, I wanted to show you something and uh, takes him to the laboratory and shows him that the, he's brought the creature back to life. And, you know, he's getting it to obey some of his commands as well. And Paul's just like, you know, you're dude, you're you're out of control. Like you are a maniac. I, I'm going to like tell the, the authorities, the police, like what's going on here. This is just, you know, absolute craziness. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, we start to go into the final scene here where <laughs> Paul runs out of the house and then, you know, the Baron goes after him to try to stop him from telling the authorities. And back in the house, though, you know, we see the creature and he kind of stands up and he's chained up. But he ends up breaking the chains that are you know holding him in place there. And you know this isn't going to end well. And then we see uh, Hazel Court's character, you know, Elizabeth. uh, She's like, I want to know what's going on up there. Because, you know, she's been living there for a little while now. And she knows he's always behind these locked doors. And there's experiments. Like, what's going on up there? You know, curiosity. She she wants to know what's going on up there. That's not a good idea. So she (laughs) goes up there and, you know, comes face to face with uh, Christopher Lee. Yeah, the fate of both women in the story was especially painful parts of the film because they were both met very tragic endings that really as affect the viewers and i thought they really you know i i I just thought both scenes were really impactful does that make sense yeah oh absolutely yeah because i mean uh, just or i'm sorry not justine uh elizabeth she ends up you know out on the like rooftops kind of like on this little like passageway and then of course you know the monster's out there too and you know the Paul and uh, the Baron see this. Well, Paul's like, screw this. I'm going to get help. I'm going to the village. Like, I'm not sticking around here one more minute because I know if I do and say I'll do that later, it'll come back to haunt me. So he takes off. But, you know, the Baron goes back to the castle and gets a gun. And, you know, he's trying to shoot at the monster, but he actually shoots Elizabeth. It's like, wow. And I can't believe it. That to me was one of the most telling parts of the film that she did not die by the monster's hand. She died by Victor's hand because Victor was desperate pulling his gun out. And he was trying to protect her and firing blindly, but shot her. But it also kind of, I thought it emphasized what a callous kind of careless person Victor was ultimately. You Mm -hmm. know, here he was, even when he was trying to save someone he cared about her, he couldn't, you know, he still, it was almost like, oh, I should probably save her. 
and he just fired blindly. Like he didn't care that much and it wasn't his main focus as a person. You know, he was still ultimately probably subconsciously trying to protect the monster despite the horrific nature of this scene. I couldn't ultimately decide whether he was truly protecting the monster. It was almost like he didn't care enough to really try to, you know, focus where he was shooting to protect her. But either way, I felt like it was kind of another demonstration of what a callous, heartful person Victor was. Yeah, to me, he didn't obviously have her safety, you know, first on the list there at that <laughs> at that point in the film anymore. It's just, I mean, he kind of was like keeping her away from his, you know, experiments and stuff like that. But at that point, he was just like, you know, well, y- you see the the pecking order. And for him, the monster was above her. Um, yeah, she seemed more like an annoyance that he felt obligated to mm-hmm. treat well and give attention to, but he never actually gave a shit about her one way or the other. Excuse me. Care yeah. about one way or the other. Yeah, he was very, he wasn't, I wouldn't say he was callous towards her, but he was very much like, oh, hi, there you are. Or if she'd be yeah. like, hey, you know, I, let's talk about this. He'd be like, I, I don't have time for that. Get everything in his life, including his, you know, soon to be wife, new wife, whatever. There, that was all a far second place to, you know, his experiments and his, you know, trying to bring life to this creature and conquer the secrets of life. It's kind of sad if you think about it. Somebody that's that obsessed, but, you know. Yeah, to me, she seemed was she was an afterthought for him that he felt mm-hmm. like he had an obligation to. But in his heart, he never felt any love towards no. her. No, absolutely not. But so he does get another shot off and he does shoot the monster, but it doesn't stop him. And he keeps coming towards him. And (laughs) I love how he throws the gun at him, man. And it (laughs) bounces off his chest like a toy. And it's classic 1950s Superman (laughs) villain move. You know, when Superman's coming towards you, the thug would throw the gun like, what the hell is that going to (laughs) do? Yeah, the bullets didn't do anything. Good luck with the gun. But uh, there's an oil lamp nearby and he takes that and chucks at the monster and, you know, the oil and the flame and it lights him on fire. You know, the monster falls through like a window and that window just happens to be right above the crazy acid pit, which, you know, when I was a kid, I was like, I want to grow up. I have an acid pit in my basement too, <laughs> just to chuck yeah. stuff in it and see it like burn it up. Uh, <laughs> but he, he, you figure it burns uh, the, the monster. So there's no evidence then. All there is is a smoking gun, a girl that's been shot and Paul's story of, you know, him being a nut. So then we go back to, you know, you know, bookend uh, the other end here, back to the prison with him telling the priest what happened. And then the guard comes by and says, uh, hey, there's a Paul Kremp here to see you. And he's like, all right. He's like, he looks at the priest and he's like, Paul was there. He'll tell you about the creature I made. And I love how Paul comes into the cell and acts like he doesn't know what Victor's talking <laughs> about. I love that. See, it's like Paul's revenge scene. Yeah, I was so proud of Paul for finally growing a pair and being like, no, I'm done with this dude. <laughs> you know, yep. I, you, we were friends. I don't hate you, but I am tired of going along with this and you need to pay for what you did. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Paul's really just like, you need to get what's coming to you after all the, you know, heartache and problems and, you know, people you've killed and allowed to be hurt and killed over your uh, obsession. So that's a really good scene. And of course, he goes, they, uh, Parent Frankenstein just he just goes off the deep end because he realized that was his last shot at maybe getting out of being killed, you know, uh, getting executed. So he jumps on Paul and starts choking him. The guards <laughs> have to come in and restrain him. And uh, I don't want to go too far into this, but I do like how this movie 
And then the sequel next, uh, they lead right into each other. So I don't know if you've watched that one in a while or watched it uh, <laughs> lately, but yeah, the, the walking to the guillotine is how this one ends. And or we see the guillotine like a faraway shot, like he's going to get it. And then uh, the next film, the sequel, that's a first sequel, I should say. That's how that one starts out. It picks up right there. And that's something I do love about it. How, you know, those two at least uh, seem that there's some really good continuity there. But uh, wow. So, yeah, good one here. So. What do you think? Overall thoughts on this one? Well, I, I want to say what you said about the final scene. Mm -hmm. I, you had mentioned this earlier, that the setting of him being in the prison, the way he looked, the priest being there. I do think that was a great setup for the film. And mm -hmm. I think it was a great setting to have Paul come in at the end like that. Such good bookends for this whole movie. And mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. The way he ended up going to the guillotine to the next film. Yeah, was a nice, which is interesting because these films are not always the best when it comes to continuity or yes. continuing. <laughs> it is a very mixed bag, to say the least, of how uh -huh. they are, both for this and the Dracula films and the other ones. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's just they throw up their hands and are not even like trying to pretend. Other times they are at least making some attempt. But mm -hmm. this is a good example of them trying to do some kind of really natural segue so i agree with it but as far as the film overall i love this film like i i think i said earlier you know i ultimately give bride of frankenstein and son of frankenstein and the universal my probably a little high but as far as an original frankenstein film this is absolutely my favorite i think it's good it's you know it does go much more into victor frankenstein being the villain himself so mm -hmm. I'm not going to say it's necessarily sort of true to the story entirely, but I think it's a great translation and adaptation of the movie. And Peter Cushing and, you know, Christopher Lee are both superb, especially Peter Cushing, who carries the film. He, he really is. the, You know, he's I don't want to say he's a heart of the film because he's one heartless bastard throughout the whole thing. Mm -hmm. He's a monster. He, yep. I mean, this is a film where the, people always say, well, Frankenstein, the monster is not Frankenstein. The doctor's Frankenstein. Here, there's no question. The monster is Doctor Frankenstein in this film. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah he's that, he's the villain. <laughs> yeah, he is absolutely the villain. But he's mm -hmm. also, you know, the film. And Peter Cushing does a superb job in this part. Yeah, he's just awesome in this one. And it, you know, it's like spawned six sequels. Really, only five because one of those is kind of a reimagining. Uh, without uh, Cushing in there, uh, and it's like one of my least favorite Hammer films. So that's probably, the parody. Type yeah, I'm probably never going to talk about that one. Um, I think I saw that parts of that once and never watched the whole thing. Yeah, to me, I would watch it on mute just so I could see <laughs> Veronica Carlson. That's the only. <laughs> she's in Good that point. film, and she's my favorite Hammer girl, and she's a gorgeous lady. But oof, yeah, I'm not a big Ralph Bates fan, and. Yeah, that one was, uh, oh, yeah, no thank you. Um, <laughs> but again, I'm a huge Hammer fan, as huge as you'll ever find, but there are some of them that I just don't care for, and that's one of them. Um, but yeah, well, again, overall, I love it too. Great film. Um, it's just, it's one of those films, again, I, I can go back to it any time. First Hammer film for Peter Cushing, and, you know, like we said about the color and just the blood and, Oh, man, it's just I mean, and again, what something else Hammer would become to known for is, you know, beautiful ladies in there, <laughs> you know, in these films, you know, Absolutely. Hazel, yeah, Hazel Court is gorgeous in this film. And, you know, uh, it's really uh, it's something that's like, again, sets the tone from here on out. So 
All right, my friend. Well, I'm glad you joined me here. So, yeah, my plan is is to, uh, you know, maybe in a, a couple of months, you and I get together again and we can talk about the sequel and then uh, go down the road with the rest of the sequels. Uh, and then uh, same thing with the Dracula series as well. I haven't found a permanent uh, person to talk about the Dracula series yet. I'm, I'm currently uh, t- tempting and almost going to resort to begging soon. Uh, someone <laughs> that was like, well, maybe. Um, but, uh, I do have, uh, another hammer film coming up. Uh, it'll probably come out, uh, probably, mm, I would say sometime in April. Uh, you and I are talking about this, uh, one here. This one's going to be a, this one will release in March sometime. So probably about a month later in April, I have, uh, a co-host to talk about, a one of the core hammer horror films there from this era, uh, a friend of yours and mine. Uh, I won't say who it is. It's a secret. <laughs> But it's a, a super awesome person that I love to talk to. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to that, too, because, like I said, I'm going all out with Hammer this year. I'm going to do a ton of Hammer. That might be the only movies I do talk about this year might only be Hammer. And I'm fine with that because, uh, you know, I'm a Hammer-like maniac. I just <laughs> can't get enough Hammer. But thanks, Mike, for joining me. I do appreciate it. Um, if anybody's looking for you out there, where can they find you and your work? Well, um, if you're on Twitter comics in the ga comics in the golden age is the um longer version obviously you can tell from the title what i post about i have a podcast which is only about quarterly now i'm kind of winding i've been a little slower last year but i am hoping to pick it up over the summer to do more uh, frequent episodes which is of course comics in the golden age so mm-hmm. i'd be happy to hear from you there mm-hmm. yeah you just actually had an episode drop too recently i think did you not Yes, I was um, celebrating the 85th anniversary of Prince Valiant. The mm, Hal Foster. Bridge. Yes, which I am a huge fan of Hal Foster. And I was very happy. And it's funny because I originally, when I had my podcasting partner, Chris, my cousin, a few years ago, we were going to do a big episode. And he unfortunately had to kind of bow out of the podcast and I've been doing it alone for a while. And that postponed me doing that episode. But it worked out because it, I ultimately, when I did it, it got to fall on prince valiant's 85th anniversary which kind of worked out so i was oh. happy to do it and happy to ultimately have the episode yeah that's really super cool yeah when you post artwork from some of those golden age artists you know i know a lot of people probably don't think of golden age artists as on equal footing or higher than more contemporary but when you post stuff from people like hal foster I can look at that and you can see the detail in that. And I'm just like, wow, somebody was drawing that by hand in like the 1940s. That to me just blows my mind. It's incredible. Yeah, I think Hal Foster and Alex Raymond in particular. Mm, yeah. It's hard to look at that. But I also wanted to mention on Frankenstein before you wrap up. Mm-hmm. I, I have a little story I just wanted to share. Mm-hmm, sure. Which was that a few months ago in October, I, my daughter and I, she on her own late in the summer decided to read Frankenstein, the original mm. Frankenstein by Mary Shelley on mm, her own. Nice. I had nothing to do with it. And I thought, oh, that's awesome. So then we got word that in Christmas they were going to show the original universal Frankenstein film on the oh, big screen. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is my chance. So I told her because she hadn't really gone to me. I think a, a year, a couple of years ago, she went to see the original Indiana Jones on the big screen with my dad and I, but she hadn't gone to see a lot of classic films. And I really like to do that. Whenever I hear of an old film on the big screen, I jump on that. So mm-hmm. I thought, wow, maybe she'll be interested in this. So I told her and she wanted to see it. 
So, and it was a double feature with Dracula. Bella nice. Dracula. So I took her to see it and she loved it. She loved the book. She loved the movie. She loved the Dracula movie. She got really into it. And um, it was so much fun to take my daughter, who's my older daughter, who's 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah, later we were in New York on a trip and she saw a t-shirt for sale with the um, Boris Karloff Frankenstein. And she got so excited and bought it. She was oh, awesome. wearing it like frequently. And so now, since you gave me an excuse to buy The Curse of Frankenstein, I haven't mentioned it yet, but I'm hoping she'll be as enthused to see The Curse of Frankenstein. So I wanted to thank you for giving me an excuse to finally buy that Blu-ray set that I've been wanting to get. So I'm hoping my daughter will be as interested in seeing in that, given how much she loved the other Frankenstein films. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. I mean, that's just even her being that enthused about, you know, the 31 version and Karloff is excellent. You know, you know, there's I don't think there's a whole lot of kids running around these days that would, you know, be interested. No, I in did it. not. I thought I was like, well, if she's at least tolerable of it, but she actually really got into it. And the funny thing is, I think she the only thing is, I think she gave a little nod to Dracula because her name is Mina. And of course, Mina. Oh, Harper. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. hers is a different Mina. It's the Indian version who's like M-E-N-A instead mm-hmm. of M-I-N-A. But she'll, she got the giggles in the last half hour because there's, as you get to the end of the film, people say Mina a lot. Mm-hmm. And she's never heard her name said in any film ever. <laughs> so <laughs> we were great. watching Dracula. And at the end, not only did they say her name a lot, but at one point they're in the caves at the end of Dracula. And so they're looking for Mina. So they're shouting, Mina, Mina. And she really got the giggles because it was just funny to her that these people were just shouting her name. But she generally actually liked the film and she generally really liked the Frankenstein film as well, as well as the book. So that just was so awesome to me to have my daughter really like those movies and the book. And I hope she ends up liking The Curse of Frankenstein as much. Yeah, you need to leave the Blu-ray laying around and be like, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that over there? <laughs> well, I already mentioned I had it, and she said she is interested in seeing it. So hopefully at some point in the next few weeks, we can watch it. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that's good memories right there, man. But that's thank a, that's you again one. for the excuse to buy it. <laughs> hey, anytime. I'm trying to always uh, get people to buy things that they might want to talk about with me. That's that's always my like <laughs> insidious plan, like plant this seed. <laughs> but uh all right, Mike. Well, again, thank you for being on. I appreciate it. Yeah, everybody get out there and uh, give Mike a follow on Twitter. You love, you know, comic book stuff, you know, all sorts of ephemera, pop culture stuff, but definitely a focus on, like your name says, comics in the golden age. And then give a listen to the show, too, because you're on all the Apple podcasts, all that stuff. You can find that show anywhere. It's all over the place, right? Yeah, pretty much on all the typical podcasting things. Yep. Okay, well, I'm going to let you go here, Mike, and then uh, come back in and wrap up the show. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Billy. I really appreciate you having me. It was 1938. The country continues its slow recovery from the Great Depression, while war clouds loom throughout Asia and German aggression builds in Europe. Americans seek comfort and distraction. It was a time when the most popular form of entertainment was radio. But a new form had been growing steadily and was set to explode. It was to become the golden age of the American comic book. My name is Chris. And my name is Mike. Please join us as we explore comics in the golden age between 1938 and 1955. All genres will be discussed, 
from superheroes to crime, horror, science fiction, humor, and western. So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher, and visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com. up episode 36 uh, once again i'd like to thank mike from comics in the golden age for being on a great guy you know we had a lot of fun and uh, i look forward to having him on again now as i'm uh, been saying i want to try to have a permanent co-host for each uh, franchise and uh, mike's definitely up for it with uh, the frankenstein series with hammer so uh, again looking forward to talking to him with uh, the very first sequel here and uh, maybe in a couple of months hopefully we'll get that one out maybe in uh, may sometime so uh, thanks everybody for tuning in, downloading, listening, likes, retweets, all that stuff. Really appreciate it. And if you want to leave any feedback for the show, you can do so at magazinesandmonsters at gmail.com. You know, I'd really appreciate anything there that anybody has to say, uh, any comments on the film or anything else. That would be fantastic. All right. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.